My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. better conversations in Canada with their elected officials about how we as a country behave internationally. There is no space between the foreign policy of Freeland and Trudeau and the foreign policy of Trump, uh, Biden, or Obama in Latin America. Like, That's the voice no of Matthias de Dovitis. He is today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. De Dovitis moved to Canada from Uruguay with his family when he was a child. His family was very political, with various members that were exiled or spent time in prison during the years of Uruguay's dictatorship in the 1970s and 1980s. This played a significant role in shaping his view of the world and of politics. He's been involved in electoral politics since he graduated from high school. Over the years, he moved from volunteering on campaigns to managing lots of them, and his paid work is as a political staffer. As well, he's been involved in starting and running many other kinds of organizations, from a group for Latin American students when he attended University of Toronto, to a community newspaper, to various cultural and grassroots organizations. In today's episode, he'll be talking about one of those organizations, the Canadian Latin American Alliance. According to their website, they aim to use public education and advocacy to support, quote, the development of a relationship between Canada and Latin America that is based on principles of democracy, self-determination, and the defense of human rights, end quote. It's nothing new for critics of Canada's role on the world stage to point out that the myth of Canadian benevolence that informs so much liberal and left nationalism has never matched this country's actual actions. In the context of this larger pattern, de Dovitis argues that in recent decades, Canada has become much more aggressive in pursuing an agenda in Latin and Central America that supports the interests of Canadian corporations, especially mining and other resource extraction industries, and that is often hostile to democracy, progressive politics, and human rights. Describing Canada as, quote, predatory in its actions in support of Canadian corporations, he continued, quote, we utilize our resources and our political influence to undermine democratic political discourse in many other places that we own capital assets collectively as a country. We do bad things that lead to people being killed and tortured and persecuted and fired and things like that, end quote. Key moments have included Canada's active support for coups in Haiti in 2004, Honduras in 2009, and Bolivia in 2019. It includes long-standing hostility towards the government of Venezuela and economic sanctions against both Nicaragua and Venezuela. De Dovitis particularly points towards the leading role played by Canada in the so-called Lima Group, a consortium of Canada plus governments from the region, particularly right-wing governments, that has mostly focused on pushing for a regime change in Venezuela. The founding of the Canadian Latin American Alliance took place in early 2020. The plan was to launch it with a major in-person fundraiser, but the COVID pandemic quickly made that impossible and changed the trajectory of the group. 
Over the year and a half since, their work has mostly involved doing a series of webinars featuring activists, Canadian parliamentarians, and dignitaries from various Latin American countries. In de Dovitis's experience, there's already lots happening on these issues in different Latin American communities in Canada. But most of the time, those activities are pretty disconnected from what's happening even in other Latin American communities here, and they get paid scant attention by most people rooted in the dominant English and French-speaking political cultures. The goal of the Alliance, then, is not to replace all of that work, but to amplify it and thereby reach a larger audience with their pro-democracy, pro-self-determination, pro-human rights message. As it becomes possible to hold offline events, de Dovitis hopes that the Alliance can expand its work to build bridges within and across various Latin American communities, and also with other diasporic communities that are also harmed by Canada's actions around the world. Ultimately, they will continue to pressure the Canadian government to leave the Lima Group, to stop interfering in the internal affairs of other countries, to stop the use of economic sanctions, which mostly end up hurting ordinary people, and to do more to make Canadian corporations respect the rights of workers, communities, and indigenous peoples around the world. I speak with de Dovitis about the Canadian state's orientation towards Latin America and about the Canadian-Latin American alliance. My name is Matias de Dovitis. I lived in Canada for most of my life, came here when I was a kid came from Uruguay. My family was very political. Many of my family members were exiled, spent time in prison over a right-wing dictatorship in the 80s. And some of my first memories in life are some of the activities and some of the things that my parents were involved with. So when I came to Canada, I was very involved in politics at different levels of activism, whether electoral politics or work around the Latin American community. And that has had a significant impact on how I see politics and how I see Canada. Since graduating from high school, I've been involved in electoral politics. I've managed campaigns. I've done training for probably thousands of volunteers. I train other campaign managers. I think electoral politics is the way to make the most significant impact in society. My first real experience organizing wasn't an electoral politics person, but I, I helped to start the organization of Latin American Students at U of T. Created a network of organizations throughout a number of different campuses. From there, I, I sort of gained a real interest in being able to organize people. So I've set up a number of organizations throughout my life. I've helped to start a local newspaper. I've helped to start cultural organizations. I've sat on the board for a number of different things. One of the proudest things I've done, I've helped to start an organization that works with Latin American students. Unfortunately, Latin American kids in Canada have some of the highest dropout rates, the lowest rates of post-secondary attendance of any ethnic group. So for a number of years, I've worked with an organization called Conocer and more recently, with a number of other Latin American activists, we started an organization called the Canadian Latin American Alliance to try and increase the level of political conversation around Latin America in Canada, because Canada has grown its influence and its impact in a very negative way in the last five, ten years in the continent. And I think we need to do a better job of demonstrating values of democracy and defending human rights abroad. It's something that we think we do, but that, in fact, we don't. So what were the political moment and the set of conversations that the Canadian-Latin American alliance emerged from? Canada has not historically had a real significant footprint in Latin American politics. 
really only in the 70s did the foreign ministry within Canada start looking at having a, a dedicated policy with Latin American things like that. But not like a real big footprint. It's really hard for that sort of hone in on the need of Canadian businesses to have better access to Latin American markets, particularly the mining industry. Canada owns about two-thirds of all major international mining companies. So we are a significant power broker in terms of worldwide mining enterprises. Many of them are in Latin America. And Harper's neoliberal policies that were set up earlier in the century are still in place. The entire bureaucracy in Canada now is pro-regime change in Venezuela. This is a very distinct change in policy from earlier, which is more laissez for and, and sort of, for example, with Cuba, where we actually took a very different approach to our politics than, say, the U.S. You look at the difference between how Trudeau Sr. treated Cuba versus how Trudeau Jr. is treating Venezuela. You have an embargo on Nicaragua. Look at how we treated Haiti earlier on, before Harper, but still. So there's been a gradual shift towards a policy that was sort of syncretized through the creation of a group called the Lima Group. The Lima Group was basically a coalition of right-wing governments in Latin America and Canada that were set up with the express purpose of changing the regime in Venezuela. This is a very significantly activist change in how Canada viewed Latin America and its role in Latin America. And you saw that through a number of different activities, but principally through Canada's role in Bolivia and what happened in Bolivia over the last three years or so. So how the Canadian-Latin American alliance started had to do with a number of conversations with different Latin American activists on the left. And what we saw as this really negative influence by Venezuelan groups in Canada and how they affected Latin American politics from Canada. They created this circumstance where none of the supposedly left-wing or left-leaning parties in Canada would say anything remotely critical. They would take positions that would basically be pro-regime change by default. And they changed the kind of conversations that we could have. And we thought it would be important to initiate a conversation where we could, for once, start talking about the really positive elements about many of the Latin American progressive groups and governments That was the beginning of it, but really just the silence from political parties about Latin American politics, unless it was about Venezuela and unless it was about regime change. We thought that was really negative and we wanted to have a change. And without getting too bogged down in details, talk a little bit about how this newish orientation has translated into actions on the ground by the Canadian state beyond participation in the Lima Group. One of the most significant tools to have been started to be used by right-wing governments in the Western world over the last 20 years or so was the use of economic sanctions to do war by other means. So you have the U.S. and their very infamous now economic sanctions in places like Iraq and, you know, the thousands of lives that that cost before the second war in Iraq. But then Canada also has sanctions on a number of different countries throughout the world. Two of them are in Latin America, Venezuela's one, Nicaragua's the other. 
So the Lima Group has created not just a political group that offers influence in the terms of you know grants and monies to opposition leaders in Venezuela, but then that also creates a series of destabilizing economic policies that prevent these countries from you know having sovereignty over their own economy. This has an influence in terms of Venezuela or other places being able to buy medicine, which with COVID, we saw the real significant effects they can have on the child population. The problem with this at a fundamental level is that when we as Canada start trying to determine the leadership of other countries in the way that we're doing through the Lima Group, we undermine the premise of sovereignty, democracy, and human rights in other countries. One of the fundamental values of democratic, rural democratic choice is that citizens within a country should choose their own leadership. Canada is undermining this and doing it in a number of different ways. From Canada, we give millions of dollars to supposedly development work in other countries, but some of it lately has gone to opposition groups in different countries, primarily in Latin America and Venezuela, very similar to what the U.S. has done for decades. And the countries that were originally in the Lima Group were very, very far right wing governments. You're talking about Bolsonaro, who's been accused of genocide on a number of different levels in Brazil, with the indigenous people in Brazil, with a number of different actions that happened through COVID. You're talking about the government in Honduras. The brother of the president of Honduras is in prison right now, arrested by the DA for drug trafficking. The government in Chile, well, the government in Chile just lost a massive referendum and underwent all kinds of protests. More people protested the current government in Chile than voted in the last election. The government in Peru has gone through like a number of different presidents and we just had an election and that government is no longer there because the new president has pulled them from that group. Same with Bolivia. You're really down to a handful of right-wing governments that are, in many cases, the culprits of the worst human rights violations in the continent. So Canada has done very specific things to aid and give cover to some of these right-wing, human right-violating governments in Latin America. And you see that in Colombia today, like dozens of people, hundreds of people killed really over the last month or so over a number of strikes. It's a really terrible situation. And I think a lot of people in Canada don't realize just exactly how much influence Canada has had in providing political cover, in providing economic assistance, in selling weapons and in providing trade and resources for these governments to be able to continue to do some of the really terrible things they're doing. How did the alliance take shape and what has it been up to? Like many things over last year, COVID has really changed what we were planning to do. I remember we were planning our first fundraising event around February and March of last year. And of course that didn't end up happening because of COVID. We started to create a number of different Zoom webinars, We've had about eight or nine different members of parliament from Canada participate. We've had different dignitaries from Latin American participate, a uh, former foreign minister from Ecuador, a number of Colombian parliamentarians, including some of them may end up being the Colombian president at the free and fair elections in Colombia. And really to serve as the conduit for a lot of organizing that was already happening. One of the things that we identify is that many of the activism activities that are happening in Canada in the Latin American community have been really in silos where you have different communities that are not really interconnected and are not connected to the larger Canadian political landscape. And this has to do with the fact that, you know, we come from different countries. We have different interests. And unlike, say, the Tamil community in Canada, that is very much from one place, speaks one language, and has very similar politics and history, 
we all come from different places. In Latin America, you're talking about a number of different immigration waves from different countries for different reasons. And as a result, there was a lot of breaks in how some of the stuff was happening. Some of it was generational. So we've spent a lot of time talking to many different groups in terms of how it is that we connect things to the rest of civil society in Canada. You do what you're doing. You continue to organize. You continue to do that important work that you're doing. We won't replicate what you're doing. All we're going to do is we're going to try and put a megaphone in front of you so that other people can hear you as well translate what we need to and have conversations and the languages that we need to. So for example, a webinar yesterday with a number of parliamentarians from Canada and Colombia, and it was held in Spanish and French. It was simultaneous translation. And just providing that logistical support was horrible because there was already a group of mostly Colombian folks out there in Quebec that were doing all the organizing on that stuff, right? And just providing that support. Because often in Latin American organizing, in the same way as in other elements of our lives, the Latin American community is impoverished and doesn't have a lot of resources. So our role is to try and fit that need where we're able to sort of broadcast what's happening in Latin America to a larger audience and to be able to get in touch with more people as a result of that. What's been involved in that process of building relationships and bringing disconnected contexts together? One of the things that we've had to deal with internally is to come to terms with the fact that you're dealing with a lot of trauma from different groups. You know, so different groups sometimes don't talk to each other, don't work well internally and things like that. When you're talking to some of the activists and some of the different roles that they play, you have to understand that some of these people were the victims of torture. Some of the people that you're there are the survivors of tremendous violence. And when you come to terms with that, then the rest of it clicks a little bit more simply. And really, you're just there to facilitate the conversation and to serve as that medium for folks. And we think of our role as being able to do that translation for folks. But it's not an easy process because the politics can sometimes be split up and things. Having a conversation with some of the younger activists, it can be a bit simpler sometimes. When you're dealing with some of the elders in our communities, you're dealing with those traumatic experiences, that, that politics, that history, that baggage that makes moving quickly through some issues and organizing an event and organizing a discussion, organizing some kind of meeting a bit more complicated and so on. But it's such a significant part of us being able to come in and work collectively on issues. So a lot of what we've been doing is trying to do translation services in a sense, right? Translation from English to Spanish, Spanish to French, but then translation of the politics of socialism, progressive politics in Latin America to a place where it can be a bit closer to mainstream Canadian political discourse, which isn't an easy thing. So how to deal with the difference between like the two different worlds and how to have a conversation where we bring up to the surface some of these issues that don't necessarily affect, you know, ordinary Canadians that are not Latin American on a day-to-day basis, but that uh, ought to be fundamental to how it is that Canada behaves out there in the world. We think, many of us in Canada, that, you know, we're still this blue helmet, peace-loving, peace-generating force in the world. When we're very far from that, we're basically a very predatory, first world, developed, wealthy country that generates a lot of its wealth from processing raw resources in the developing world. And we utilize our resources and our political influence to undermine democratic political discourse in many other places that we own capital assets collectively as a country. We do bad things that lead to people being killed and tortured and persecuted and fired and things like that. 
And there are many examples of Canadian companies behaving that way. So how do you communicate that to a larger audience? And how do you make that argument succinctly for folks in a way that's more easily digestible so that we can initiate a conversation? Because we know that if most people were aware of this, we would see more changes as to what we do. And from looking at your website, it looks like, along with your work dealing with the role of Canada in Latin America, the Alliance also pays some attention to the experiences of Latin American people here, specifically in terms of your campaign related to migrant workers in Canada. Yeah, no, because that's part of the same coin. It's part of the exploitation of Latin American resources, in this case, little humans that come to Canada. On a personal level, having worked a summer in an Ontario farm, I know firsthand the type of treatment that we give to migrant workers that come to Canada on temporary visas. And, you know, we need to do better. So it's about making the connections between, you know, where we get our food, where we get our copper, what our companies are doing overseas, and the responsibility we owe to ourselves as Canada and to the rest of the world and Latin America on those things. And if we practice some of the things that we preach, we would be in a much better place, whether it's how we treat the people that are responsible for giving us food or how we treat people abroad. And these are part of the same discourses and conversations that we need to have in Canada about our role in the hemisphere. We've had some really shameful chapters, everything from, you know, our activities in Haiti to the relationship between Canada and Colombia right now. The folks that are in charge of the government in Colombia will probably, many of them, end up in prison for some of the things that they're doing this past month. And our government is supporting that. We need to have a real conversation about what kind of standards we have for ourselves in Canada and whether or not we apply those same standards overseas. You can make connections between the way that we treated First Nations in Canada and the type of processes that led to the creation of the country in itself through the type of activities and the type of things that we're doing abroad through our international corporations, particularly in the mining industry. There's often a way in which conversations about the harms that Canada does in the world end up at least implicitly centering how white Canadians will or won't understand and respond. But what do you see as the potential, and maybe the challenges, for engaging with other diasporic groups, other racialized groups in Canada, in terms of building towards some kind of change in Canadian foreign policy? Internally, we have that discussion a lot. And the main thing that gives me hope is that the kids ain't having that. The generations that are coming out of university, that are coming out of high school right now, they're not having it. They're not wanting to have a conversation about like our old colonial past and traditions and things. They want to be able to have a conversation about how we can do better and how we can make justice of all these really terrible relationships that Canada as a country has had with First Nations, for example. Right before COVID, there were striking in the tens of thousands in Quebec, Montreal, many places in Canada about the environment. And in the same vein, as we have conversations about social justice, as we have conversations about, you know, how it is that we prevent environmental catastrophe, these are very much connected to Canada's foreign policies and how we treat other countries. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think as we change and turn over the page on some of these very important, significant issues internally, that will create better opportunities for us to change what we do internationally as well. And it's not just in Latin America. I mean, we're doing really terrible things in sub-Saharan Africa as well, where we have massive investments as well. 
and framing the conversation as has been the case in mainstream media for such a long time about the you know geopolitical clout hides the fact that ultimately this is about naked financial interest and the rest of it is just you know the dress uh, you put on it to try and make it presentable to the layperson out there. One of the things that we really want to look to do over the next year, and it's very much high on our list, is being able to start collaborating with other groups that find themselves organizing in their own community silos as well, whether it be the Iranian community or some of the other communities out there that see themselves as being sort of targeted unfairly by Canada's foreign policy and some of its financial ramifications. But really to create a collective of progressive-minded groups out there around some of the different diaspora groups. And I think that's going to be top of mind because, you know, whether or not we're doing it, we know that on the other side, those alliances exist. Whether it's a collaboration from right-wing groups on issues in the Middle East or other things like that, we need to get our act together and start working collaboratively because we know that most people, like, will be on the right side on, on, on most of these issues, right? Like, why would you prevent some child in Venezuela getting medicine, how is that going to create a better world? We need to sort of be able to work together with some of these other groups. And that's absolutely top of mind as we try and figure out how this next COVID stage of organizing is going to look like and working through some of the very concrete things at the foreign policy level that Canada has been doing for a number of years that we need to draw attention to. And those economic sanctions are at the top of the list. It might be hard to boil this down because, like we've talked about, Latin America is a large and diverse region. But to the extent that you can, what are the key changes that the alliance would like to see in how the Canadian state relates to Latin America? We need to leave the Lima group and leave the premise that Canada ought to have a role in determining the governments of other countries. That's the first premise, right? Like that hawkish, Harper-led initiatives that were centered around places like Iran and other things that are now also being targeted at countries like Nicaragua and Venezuela. You know, whether or not we like the governments, we shouldn't determine who governs them. The second element has to do with the role of our corporations in foreign societies and whether or not the Canadian government can actually implement some of the human rights elements of those free trade agreements with places like Colombia and so on because we're not enforcing any of the human rights and labor standards that we wrote into some of these free trade agreements. And whether or not we can have higher standards than what we've had so far on those things. I mean, it's not about needing to be the peacekeeping blue helmet force of the 60s and 70s and things of that nature. It's about making sure that Canada understands its own boundaries and its own role and creates better relationships and healthier relationships with some of the other countries in the hemisphere. For listeners who aren't themselves Latin American, what would you ask them to do to support the kinds of changes that the Alliance is working towards? So I guess it depends the type of level of participation that people want to have, but absolutely there's lots of groups out there that are doing fantastic work trying to change how Canada treats folks out there. But very specifically, we need to have better conversations in Canada with their elected officials about how we as a country behave internationally. There is no space between the foreign policy of Freeland and Trudeau and the foreign policy of Trump, uh, Biden, or Obama in Latin America. Like, there's absolutely no difference. And we have to come to terms with that. We think we're different. We're not. We haven't been, not for years. And once we come to terms with that collectively as a country, we need to start thinking about where we want to be. You have been listening to my interview with Matthias de Dovitis of the Canadian Latin American Alliance.
To learn more about the organization, go to claa.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.